Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Warning. This episode contains violence, racist language, and scenes that some listeners may find distressing. I was never um, violent and confrontational, but I was always sarcastic and outspoken. There's a difference, you know. Last time you heard from Mike Sapp in episode one, it was 1992, and he was still at Transit in Newark. Mike was in his early 20s, and he was going through a lot. His best friend, Mike Morrison, had just left for Maplewood PD, and his dad had recently died. It was too overwhelming and too constant for me. Mike Sapp was struggling. Remember how he said he challenged Boba, the police captain, to a fight behind the dumpster on Mike Morrison's behalf? Well, it seems those actions came back to punish him. Mike says life was tough under Boba. He was looking for a way out. But lucky for him, he wasn't alone. I had a a black sergeant who was a former Marine. And he took me under his wing. We all know someone like this guy. Someone who looks out for you and who's in your corner just because. This sergeant was called Jerry Coleman. And he was a lifeline for Mike at Transit. He was the father figure he needed. And when this young rookie officer felt like he had to speak up, Jerry would reel him in. And he would always call me to the side and say, hey, 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 come here. Listen, you need to learn how to pick your battles, man. You, you can't flare up and sound off at every little thing. You understand? You know, pick and choose wisely. Don't, don't get caught up. Don't get caught up. You know, because you become a thorn in their side, you'll be on the outside looking in. There's something about not getting caught up and knowing your place when you're Black, especially when you're part of a monster institution. It's a rule of thumb. Pass down Black families for generations alongside the whole work twice as hard lesson. But with this particular rule, there are terms and conditions. Gratitude is expected. Speaking up is challenged. Code switching, if appropriate, works favorably. Mike Morrison knew his place and stayed in line. But Mike Sapp, he was different. He got caught up. This is the story of a man who tried to take on the system. From Curious Cast and Blanchard House, I'm Saren Jones, and this is Black and Blue, Behind the Badge. Episode 7, The Bridge Too Far. I'm at least happy and satisfied that I tried instead of just putting my head down and and going away. Mike Sapp tried to beat the system. The only person in this podcast who dared to take on the system through the system, to try to right its wrongs. 
So in this episode, you're mainly going to hear from him. Let's go back to the start. I remember I was in the ninth grade and there were like five of us. I was probably 14, 15 years old. It was Halloween. So we were walking to the other side of town. You can see it. A crisp fall evening. Autumnal colored leaves are scattered on the ground. Pumpkins and scarecrows pose as decorations in front porches and front yards. Clusters of kids and families in dress up are wandering the streets, laughing, excitable. Trick-or-treating is in full swing. And then, out of nowhere. A police car pulled up. The police officer, who was white, asked Mike and his friends where they were going. The kids said they were going to Cedar Lane. The officer said, Nah, you don't live over there, do you? Mike said, No, we, we live by Tryon Park. Suddenly, the officer had conviction. He said, Okay, start walking back that way, towards the park where you live. It was obvious. Mike and his friends were on the wrong side of town. We didn't object. We said, okay, we turn around, start walking. This childhood incident has stayed with Mike. Sound familiar? And I said, man, this guy told us we couldn't go over to see the lane. Like, what kind of nonsense is that? We got to go back where we live? Like, that's not right. I want to take a minute here to reflect on this story. Even though this happened more than 40 years ago, for me, this story is so similar, too similar to the others we've heard throughout the show. It reminds me of Jason from the last episode and how he was beaten and marched out of Maplewood by police officers in 2016. It reminds me of RB, the kid from episode four. Remember how he told us he went to borrow a bike, got chased and arrested by Mike Morrison and was picked up by his mum at the police station wearing just a pair of shorts? This narrative seems like it's on repeat. Black kids on the wrong side of town. Black kids being ushered back to where they're from. These early encounters with police officers are formative and their effects linger. Now, for RB, being in the wrong place at the wrong time put him off the police for life. But here's a surprise. For Mike Sapp, his early experience had the total opposite effect. This interaction fascinated him. It planted a seed in his mind, a thought that if he was a cop, he'd be different. When I was about 19 years old, I started taking an interest in law enforcement. And I used to just constantly, no matter where I was, I would watch the police and I would watch them interact with people or pull a car over. And it just, it just piqued my interest. Mike Sapp went from a guy with a peaked interest to full-blown committed. And honestly, I got into law enforcement to try to help people that needed help. The decision was made. Mike Sapp was going to be a cop. He went to the police academy before landing his job at Transit, which is where he met Mike Morrison. He eventually got out. And even though he wanted to stay... He just couldn't see a future under Captain Boba. It's a shame that uh, I had to base my decision on one guy who was a uh, kingpin in the agency, and that weighed heavily on my decision to leave. 
You'll remember that Captain Joseph Boba actually went on to become chief of New Jersey Transit Police. We contacted him for this podcast, but he didn't want to comment. Boba finally stepped down as chief in 2009, after a jury found he retaliated against a female lieutenant who complained of sexual discrimination. But back in the 1990s, to Mike Sapp, it looked like Boba was going to be in charge forever. You know, this guy's always going to be in the mix, and he has all to say so. So I'm out. Mike Sapp left transit and had a go at being a state trooper. But he didn't really like it. By May 1996, a job came up. I left and went to East Windsor. Better salary, better retirement package. But it had, it, it had its drawbacks. I mean, everywhere has its drawbacks, right? This move was the fresh start Mike was looking for. An opportunity to police in an environment that was closer to home a chance to help people. Mike accepted the job at East Windsor Township Police Department, which is where he spent most of his career. East Windsor is in the suburbs of uh, Mercer County, New Jersey. It was very diverse with people and types of housing. You had apartments, you had sprawling homes, you had regular sized homes. There was a main highway that went through. There was a huge business district with strip malls and strip plazas, you know, supermarkets, stores and everything. The move made sense. A better department and a better salary. Life in the suburbs, it was a no-brainer. And on top of that, Mike knew the department was specifically looking to hire black and brown officers. He thought it was the perfect opportunity. Looking back, not so much. But hindsight is a beautiful thing. Had I known then what I have come to learn later in life, that's not a reason to go somewhere um, because they need a minority. It was a continuation of that diversity push that started in the late 80s, that drive that saw Larry Washington, Mike Morrison and Tina all decide to protect and serve. In the mid-90s, black officers were still in demand. But what we know now about tick box exercises is that without real resources and real intention, they don't work. As time progressed, there were some major issues with the supervision there and the command staff. East Windsor was a department of around 50 officers policing a 16 square mile town. That's around three officers on beat per mile. From the outside, it sounds kind of saturated. And from what Mike remembers, on the inside, the force could be cliquey and hostile, to say the least. While some officers embraced culture change, others didn't. But there were no invitations to fight by the dumpster here. It seems that things were a little more insidious. They were smart enough not to do the New Jersey transit routine where they just drop N-bombs all over the place and, you know, blatant discrimination. It was certain but subtle you know, with certain people. Nevertheless, there was one superior who stood out to Mike, a lieutenant who became a chief. He led East Windsor for 16 years of Mike's career. His name was Bill Spain. I had an excellent, excellent career under his leadership. He was a gifted and talented guy. He was also a very no-nonsense guy, professional to the T. And when I say no-nonsense... If anyone stepped out of line, anyone, he was ready to deal with you on a disciplinary level, and it was 
a sure thing. Spain ran a tight ship. The way that he ran things and his personality and his leadership style, everyone knew that you had to do your job and that no foolishness would be tolerated at all. The guy set the bar high. He took no type of discrimination from anyone. He made sure of it. To Mike, he was an ally. And one particular incident stays in mind. One time I left my computer on. And the guy gets on my computer. And he writes this email to the police department. (laughs) An agency-wide email. And he says, yeah, this is um, Michael Sapp. I just got hired here. And I'm going to start a black police officer union. And if anybody wants to join, I have applications in my mailbox. And he sent it to the whole PD. At this point, Mike Sapp was the only black officer in the department. He was more of a minority at East Windsor than he was at Transit. The next day, he went in to get his paycheck. He didn't know about the email. Everybody in the room stopped talking. So I'm looking around like, okay, what happened? I grab my paycheck, I'm on my way out the door. Bill Spain is a lieutenant at the time. He sees me. Michael, come in my office right now. Mike is confused, awkward. He knows something is off. Something weird is going on. I go in his office, he closes the door. He gives me the email. He said, did you write this email? So I read the email. And I kind of chuckled a little bit. I'm like, no, uh, Lieutenant, I didn't write that email. I left my computer on. Bill Spain was not happy. Not happy at all. He said, "Uh, well, I don't see anything funny here at all. He said, and I don't tolerate nonsense like this on my watch. Okay, nor will I ever. So I need to ask you, are you offended by this email? And I said, "Uh, no, Lieutenant, I'm, I'm not offended by it. He said, you sure? He said, because guess what? If you tell me that you're offended by it, I'll find out within the hour who wrote that email and they'll be quiet for the next 20 years in this police department. Now, the way I see it, Mike's experience and reaction is all too familiar. It's the classic case of when a person of color is the butt of an ignorant comment or racist behavior. And they're given the choice about how to respond by the very authority that should be condemning it. Spain continued. Let me know your position on this email. I said, no, no, Lieutenant, it's fine, Uh, I'm okay. He says, all right, um, one more thing. He says, if you ever leave your computer on like that again, I'm, I'm gonna write you up for it. Now you can go ahead and leave my office. This story makes me feel kind of awkward. Mike Sapp sees it one way, but I see it a bit differently. There's something about how so often people are so quick to de-escalate racist encounters that makes me cringe. It's not just the calming of the storm or the delayed response that bothers me. What gets me is the, is it racist, is it not racist, mental battle that you end up going through, the second guessing and the self-doubt. But unlike me, Mike Sapp didn't dwell on this. Knowing that Chief Spain had his back was enough for him And over time, his career flourished. In 2011, he was promoted to sergeant. This was a big deal. Mike Sapp was the first African-American to reach that particular rank at East Windsor PD. But when Chief Spain retired a year later, 
Mike says things started to change. Fast. The nonsense that went on, on duty and off duty, by people who later made rank. Alcohol abuse, people hooked on oxycodone after a back injury, sex on duty, in uniform, in a patrol car. Now, if Bill Spain had been at the helm and got wind of that, that would have been resolved that day. That individual would have been sent packing down the road. Things weren't making sense. Mike felt a negative shift, a shift in behavior and a shift in culture too. It it would kind of be like they would pop you in the head with a baseball bat and you say, well, what was that for? Oh, just because I could. Honestly, it was a miserable career after Chief Spain left. East Windsor PD didn't want to comment on these recollections, but to Mike Sapp, it felt like the department was losing its way, losing control. You know, I don't understand. We carry guns, and if the criteria is met, we have the authority to use deadly force with that gun. But you have guys that are carrying these guns acting like high school girls. This is terrible. And it wasn't just about discipline and responsibility. Mike says he felt his colleagues' attitudes and behavior towards him shift too. Mike's day-to-day became riddled with microaggressions and lukewarm racism. He felt he was being pushed out. Without Chief Spain's backing, he says he received more nuanced behavior from his colleagues. The type of behavior that you can't prove is racist, but believe me when I say you can feel it. The worst kind. There was a union meeting in the, in the police headquarters one, one evening. The union, the police union, bought a stack of pizza pies. After the meeting, they put them upstairs in the cafeteria, and my, my squad was working till the next morning. So my squad was eating that pizza throughout the night. It all sounds pretty normal and straightforward, and this is how Mike tells it. The night shift was ending and dawn was breaking. By morning, when everyone was wrapping up, the officers in Mike's squad were eating leftovers. Before they finished up, Mike went home. I came back to work that evening and my desk was next to another sergeant's desk. And he said, hey, close the door, I need to talk to you for a minute. Seems that one of the police lieutenants had gathered the leftover pizza boxes that Mike's guys had been eating the night before and left them on his desk all day. He said, uh, I had the janitor finally throw them out because people were coming in my office to talk to me and there's a stack of pizza boxes on your desk. And then it started to smell. And they were asking, like, why is there pizza boxes on Mike's desk? Mike was confused. He knew this lieutenant. He thought maybe the lieutenant left him a message, an explanation. So I log on to my computer. I have no email. He has my phone number. I have no text message, no phone call. The departmental voicemail, nothing there. But for Mike, the facts were clear. He knew that the police union bought the pizza and that his guys ate it. And he now knew that his guys had left the pizza boxes behind, littered. But to Mike, the lieutenant's behavior was completely unnecessary and uncalled for. You know, you should have just had it thrown out and let me know about it, and I would address my guys. But you left it on my desk for everybody to see, 
like I was some fool. Now all the guys saw that, okay? All the cops saw that and they said, wow, he did that? That's not like him. He's usually more professional. This must be personal. This looks ugly, Sarge. And I said, yeah, it feels ugly. On one level, sure, it's just a story about a load of pizza boxes. But here's what I make of it. Mike felt shown up by a colleague that day, by a superior. Although this isn't that foreign in the world of law enforcement, Mike knew the relationship he had with this colleague. He felt it was strained and, yes, racially charged. So, yeah, to Mike, it was personal. It did feel ugly. I did find as my career continued, there were more Bober types. However, they were hidden, so to speak, and, and more subtle with it. But Mike didn't get caught up. Just like his father figure, Jerry Coleman, at Transit had taught him, he learned how not to flare up at every little thing. Despite the comments, the digs, the petty behaviour from his colleagues, he kept his eyes on the prize. As a sergeant, he had his heart set on his next promotion, to lieutenant. But the application process, it would make clear to him exactly what was going on here. Exactly what those pizza boxes really represented. It's 2016, and Mike Zapp is a senior, experienced cop, well qualified for a promotion. He knew how the process worked, so he started to prepare. Mike was up against four other candidates, male peers who were all white. There were three spaces up for promotion. Mike was confident. He says he had more seniority and experience than most of them, and he was better qualified academically too. I was the only African-American officer in the department and the first minority supervisor and the only one there. They gave a lieutenant's promotional exam. The exam included a written test and an interview with three independent police officers. But what Mike says he didn't know was that the new regime inserted a new layer, an opaque new layer, to the recruitment process. This time they added an in-house review panel and the peers within the agency would score you. According to Mike, things started off strong. He passed the written exam and came out second in the oral interview. After those two parts, he says he sat in second place, in line to be promoted. But when he went for his in-house review with his peers, it seems things didn't go his way. So there were five candidates. They scored me last, five out of five. So Mike says he asked how that was possible. And they said, oh, we don't have to tell you. And I said, okay. Apparently, Mike went from being in second position to last. Just like that, it seems his chances of promotion were over. And on top of that, Mike says that one of the successful candidates was significantly less qualified than he was. I had more education and training then, and seniority. To Mike, it was a tough, humiliating pill to swallow. All of those years of working overtime, of studying, of sacrifice, for what? And the hardest part out of all of this was telling his kids. I have twin daughters and they were probably 16, 17 at the time. And they kind of like chuckled a little bit like, no, stop playing around that, you know? And I said, no, nah, I'm not playing around. Um, it didn't work out. 
And they were like, but you did, you're not going to get promoted? No. That kind of knocked a little steam out of me to see the disappointment in my family's eyes. And it wasn't a good feeling. And as if feeling robbed wasn't bad enough, Mike says he couldn't get any answers about his in-house review. No conversation, no evidence, no feedback. He was left wondering what went so wrong. And he was angry. This time, it was something he couldn't let go. So uh, what I did was I went to the New Jersey Attorney General's office and I filed a civil rights complaint. Mike Sapp was about to take on the system. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. We'll come back to what happened when Mike took on the system. But first, I want to take a beat. I want to tell a story which tells us why he made that decision. Why he doesn't stay in his lane. I'll be honest with you. I'm just now realizing... As a minority in law enforcement, that is how I was able to adapt and adjust and overcome constantly in an adverse environment. Mike Sapp was raised in Teaneck, New Jersey, with his mum, dad, and older sister. They were a black, middle-class family in suburbia. And this wasn't just any old suburb. Celebrities like the Isley Brothers, the Sugar Hill Gang, Chuck Jackson, and Nat Adderley lived there. This was a suburb of what would be known today as Black Excellence. Now, Mike Morrison's upbringing in Newark was tough, and Larry Washington's childhood in the projects was even tougher. But for Mike Sapp, it was different. Mike's family, they had a nice house, a new build, bi-level home, decorated to the T. Our house was the meeting point, nice meals, holiday get-togethers with big meals. There really was no element of struggle. For a black family, the Saps were doing well. But for Mike, something was off. To be honest, I, I had a gut feeling all my life, deep down in my stomach, that just something wasn't right. And I couldn't pinpoint it. Those gut feelings, when no matter how hard you try to ignore them, they come back, eating away at you. Everything was fine in life, right? But I just, that sixth sense, that gut instinct, couldn't pinpoint it. As a kid, Mike had no real evidence to back this feeling, just curiosity and instinct. 
So when I looked at the family photo album, I was in it from an infant all the way forward. All of the major events, weddings, birthday parties. And so there wasn't much to question. Mike Sapp and I have quite a bit in common. We're both black and we grew up in the suburbs. When I called him to record one of our interviews, he even said that we could pass as siblings. We're both light-skinned with brown, reddish hair. But what makes us different is I always knew I was biracial. He didn't. And that gut feeling, it was just eating away at Mike. They were light brown skin tone. So it wasn't like I stood out like a sore thumb, but I would say, yeah, mom, I'm kind of taller than you guys. And I have reddish brown hair. Am I adopted? And uh, she would say, no, go sit down. Leave me alone with that. But sometimes the answers would vary and more information would slowly spill out. I remember my mom told me one time, your great-grandmother had red hair. Now go sit down and stop bothering me. On the very rare occasion, Mike's mom would say something that would make him perk up again, make him question everything he knew. But as for his dad, he was a bit different. Very rough and tumble guy. He boxed golden gloves in Jersey City when he was younger. He taught me how to box. Uh, But I remember as a kid being disciplined by him. I never got into trouble. But if I spilled a cup of juice or if I broke a window with a baseball, he would beat me with a belt unmercifully. And one day, Mike's instinct, that gut feeling, was triggered by his dad. I remember as a kid looking at him during, you know, the discipline sessions saying, you know, wow, like, why why is my dad so angry about something so small? And why does he hate me? Years passed and life just went on as normal. Mike graduated from high school, went to the police academy, started a career, found love and had a family. It wasn't until years later, after his dad had passed away, that the truth eventually and unexpectedly came out. So, uh, yeah, about 11 years ago, my wife disclosed to me that one of my uncles mentioned while he was intoxicated that I was adopted. And so I called my sister and I said, Karen, this is what I'm being told. Is it true? And she started crying. And I said, oh boy. That gut instinct Mike had always had, it was bang on. Mike began to dig. It took about a year And I I found an aunt who was married to my uncle, my mom's brother. And I met with my aunt. She lived in South Jersey. She was a nurse. And we went to lunch and she told me the story. The entire story in black and white. My biological parents were addicted to heroin and passed away from that. So my mom was Italian, my dad was black, her family was 
very wealthy in Bergen County. Mike's aunt told him that his biological family were very old school Italian. And they had one rule that couldn't be clearer. No black boyfriends, no black babies. This family was a world away from Mike's. His aunt continued the story. She said, honestly, in the early 60s, 70s, they did have ties to the mafia. Yeah, everyone else was struggling. They had, you know, maids and butlers and would leave at 2 a.m. and come back at 10 a.m. with 30 grand in cash. Everything Mike thought he knew was now up in the air, hanging in the balance. He wasn't just black, he was biracial, Italian and African-American. There was a whole side of him that he didn't know about. But he had to know. He had to investigate. And he couldn't resist, so he just kept digging. Until he came across his biological mother's file at an adoption registry. My mom had to take a separation class and sign a waiver. They explained to her, once you sign this waiver, you cannot return and say, I want the baby back. But Mike's mother was just 17 years old, a child herself, facing this huge decision, an unbearable decision. She signed the waiver, but then? The next day, she came back and said, nah, I changed my mind. They said, too late, you signed the waiver, you cannot have the baby back. She fell on the floor crying in the hospital. For Mike, it all started to come together. So I said, okay, well, so now I know why I was given away because I was biracial and she was forced to give me away and didn't want to. And at least she came back to try. And she did try more than once. Even when Mike was a kid, sometimes she'd show up. But of course, back then, he had no idea who she was. One night, had to be like three in the morning, I was 10 years old. My bedroom was in the front of the house on the second floor. Someone started ringing the doorbell. When I looked out the window, it was a white woman with long brown hair. By the time I went and woke my parents up, I remember watching she staggered down the street. I described her later to my sister, my biological sister and her stepsister. They said, that was your mom, for sure. It all made sense now. His difference in appearance, his relationship with his dad, the pieces of the puzzle were all falling into place. The truth was tough to swallow. Mike didn't confront his adoptive mom immediately. But when he did, he had no idea the impact it would have. When I asked my mom about it over the phone, she started hyperventilating. And I said, Mom, you know, relax. I still love you. You raised me. I just want to know the story and, you know, what happened. And uh, she goes, you, you know, you, you're old now. You don't need to know that. And within the next week or so, she had a nervous breakdown that trickled into dementia. She ended up going to a nursing home where she still lives today. She turned 100 last year. Looking back now... Mike realizes that his experiences of adversity have shaped the way he navigated his career. Regardless of what came his way, Mike kept going, 
driven by a sense of justice, with its roots in the way his father treated him. They were, at times, there would be a barrier, uh, a brick wall, or try to shun me. Um, and it didn't matter to me what they were. You know, it was, hey, I'm here to work. And if we're on a call for service, I'm here to answer the call for service and help the citizen the best way that I can. But even though he managed to wade through the system, even though all he wanted was to serve and protect, the obstacles just kept coming. Remember Mike went for that job as lieutenant? Mike felt the job had his name on it. And when he didn't get it, he just wanted to know why. But he says they wouldn't tell him. In fact, they didn't have to tell him. Mike wanted to take action, but Mike Morrison advised him not to. I would probably try and talk him off the ledge to not sue, you know, not to bring that energy on himself, you know, not to, to bring that attention on himself. I wouldn't want that for him. Mike Morrison, the measured, polite black cop from Newark, never stepping out of line, always keeping his head down. But we know Mike Sapp isn't like Mike Morrison. He was not deterred. He felt disappointed, frustrated, and needed answers. He felt he was left with no choice. I submitted the complaint for being the only minority in the process. I was senior, I had a master's degree, and I had a huge folder of supplemental training. And I felt that I was absolutely discriminated against. Mike felt he had a great case, that this could really go somewhere. His hope came from an encounter he'd had some time before. He decided to push for a copy of the in-house review panel. That's the part of the process where he was interviewed in front of a panel of his peers. He wanted to know what scores he got, a breakdown of his performance. And you'll never guess what the lieutenant said. According to Mike, the lieutenant told him, Oh, I shred it. I said, you shred the score sheet? Yeah. So you have everything else in the file from this process, but you shred that. Yep. Mike says the lieutenant in charge shred the document. To Mike, this didn't feel transparent, and it didn't feel fair. I said, okay, from a legal standpoint, that sounds very promising to me, because why would you have something in your possession uh, and then you shred it? Mike had had enough. This seemed like a smoking gun. From the time Mike Sapp submitted the complaint to the time the investigation ended, all in all, the whole process took about 18 months. And after all the analysis, the back and forth and the paperwork, the investigation finally, agonizingly, came to a conclusion. They didn't find the agency had done anything wrong. Uh, there was no probable cause for my complaint. No probable cause. Mike's complaint was killed by one line, one phrase. The investigation found that the East Windsor Agency had done nothing wrong. But, and there is a but, things weren't quite so cut and dried as all that. The report said something else. What was strange to me was it read to the effect, while your complaint has no probable cause, 
it causes our office great concern. The lack of minority employees. There's no minority supervisors on the uh, upper management level. The report suggested a comprehensive review of recruitment, hiring, and promotion. And Mike's take on that? To me, that sounded like you just named my probable cause. Seems like an admission of sorts, not an admission of wrongdoing, but that somehow the department was falling short. Now, I've read that report. It's thorough, detailed, unemotional. But it's also troubling. It documents how officers had been overheard using the N-word in the workplace. Senior management was skipping diversity training. Several officers even believed the promotional process was, quote, tainted by favoritism. And out of a department of about 50, over the past decade, it had employed only three women and six non-white officers. Only one of them had ever been promoted even as far as sergeant. And that was Michael Sapp. At the time, he was the only black officer on the entire force. So Mike Sapp had no case, but East Windsor did need to change. I contacted the department to see if they would talk about what happened, but they didn't wish to comment. I guess the harsh reality is, taking on a system usually doesn't work out. The task is massive, like moving mountains, It leaves you feeling exhausted and helpless. And when a structure is so big, so set in its ways, how much can it really change anyway? There's a system that was in place way before we came into this profession. Like these guys in these powerful positions, you know, they're crossing their teeth and dotting their eyes as they're making our life miserable. When Mike asked the lieutenant who he says shredded the documents why he didn't get the job, The response was crushing. He couldn't answer me. And he went on to tell me, Sarge, listen, you had a good enough career. A good enough career. Just like that, we're back to where we started. Another way of saying, know your place, be grateful, stay in your lane. I did what I could do, you know, within reason and legally to try to protect my my work interest, you know. And um, it didn't pan out. And uh, I was well within retirement criteria. So, you know, I retired. Mike felt he had no choice but to leave. He felt his career would fizzle out. He felt his time at East Windsor was up. At that point, you know, someone said to me, oh, but wait a minute, wait a minute. No, don't retire yet. Stay and take the lieutenant's exam again. They won't touch you with a 10-foot pole. They'll leave you where you score at the top. And I said, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to force my way into somewhere that I'm not wanted. A black man at the brink of power. So near and yet so far. But Mike doesn't regret his decision. He doesn't regret it at all. I was fine with it, actually, because I had done all I could do legally. I did what I could do for myself. And although it didn't work out, I'm still happy and proud that I stood up for myself. Mike says there's one thing that's worth remembering. Not all white officers are racist. People need to know and understand that. But 
I did find with certain people, it was okay that I worked alongside him until he saw the potential for me to become his equal or even one day his superior. That was an ugly feeling for them, and it spilled out of them. Mike retired as a sergeant from East Windsor PD in 2019. In total, he served for 31 years. But six months into retirement, he found his way back to the force, to a job that needs less emotional investment. Today, he's part of the Burlington County Bridge Commission Police, where he patrols and polices three bridges. His role is defined and simple. Great bunch of people there, from the police department to the toll collectors to the administration. You know, um, it's like a little community within itself. No issues. You know, I enjoy working there. It's a good place. As Mike patrols the bridges from one side to another, he's grounded at neither end, drifting between what was and what could have been. And every now and then, despite everything he's been through, he still tries to make a difference, especially when it comes to young black men. This was last winter. A gentleman, young guy in his like early 20s, ran out of gas, freezing outside. And he's got a gas can walking to the gas station. So I give him a ride. We get to the gas station and he's like, uh, yeah, I don't have any money. So I filled up the gas can on my debit card. And the gas attendant knew me from filling up the police car there every day. And he looked at the guy and he says, that Mike is a good cop, huh? I said, not, not what you heard, huh? And so the kid is like, yeah. Yeah, I can't, I can't lie, officer, I'm, I'm kind of surprised. But you understand my point. You have to make a conscious effort to leave things on a positive note. Otherwise, it's, it's just going to remain the same. Next time on our final episode of Black and Blue, Behind the Badge, our four officers are forced to question everything they thought they knew about their profession and their legacy. I was absolutely floored when I learned that they were all Black. Yeah, I was completely stunned by it. It's, it's really who I am. It's not what I do. It's, it's who I am. You've been listening to Black and Blue, a Blanchard House production for Curious Cast. Black and Blue is hosted, written, and produced by me, Saren Jones. Script consultant, Soraya Shockley. The sound recordist is Vulcan Kizeltuk. Original music is by Daniel Lloyd Evans, Louis Nankmanel, and Toby Matamong. Sound design and mix engineering is by Toby Matamong. Voice coaching by Vicky Merrick. The managing producer is Amika Shortino-Nolan. The creative director of Blanchard House is Rosie Pye. The head of content at Blanchard House is Lawrence Brazell. The executive producers are Charlie Bell and Lawrence Brazell. For Curious Cast, the executive producers are Dile Velasquez and Chris Duncombe.